biblical womanhood within the church, and it's a very balanced, very biblical, strong teaching on that. But just a few credentials of uh, Dr. Grudem. He uh, graduated from Harvard University with a a BA and then received his Master of Divinity from Westminster Theological Seminary and then received his PhD from the University of Cambridge. And he taught 20 years at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and now presently teaches at Phoenix Seminary. And he also, uh, this is something that's near and dear to my heart, he also was overseeing the English Standard Version Translation Committee as they created this translation of the Bible. And uh, that is the translation, this is the translation I preach from, and so that's near and dear to my heart as well, and I'm very appreciative, appreciative of his work there. Um, just uh, in terms of Dr. Grudem's family, he's married to Margaret, and you have, we were talking about it, three sons that are um, believers and serving God around the country. So this time, let's just uh, give Dr. Wayne Grudem a warm round of applause and welcome as he comes to teach us now. Thank you, Jeff. It's good to be here with you today. Wow. I didn't, I was going to say I didn't know there were this many people in Alaska. <laughs> I've never been here before, and it's a joy. I was, um, I was out running in uh, Arizona two days ago in 106 degrees, and I see from the paper it's 108 this morning. So Sean and I are happy to get out of the heat and, uh, and just join you here today. Um, I want to talk about uh, the two things you shouldn't talk about, politics and religion, all in one book. And uh, this book just came out uh, September 3rd, which is about uh, 27 days ago or something like that. It's called Politics According to the Bible, a Comprehensive Resource for Understanding Modern Political Issues in Light of Scripture. Uh, the book came about uh, partly at the request of two organizations. Um, the Center for Arizona Policy is the sister organization to the Alaska Family Policy Council. Jim Minery, where are you? Right back here. And Jim is the, uh, you really set up this uh, whole event for me coming up here. And I want to thank you for that and for the good work that you do. So Kathy Herod is the counterpart for Jim in Arizona, and uh, she and her board chairman, Jack Markle, and their legal counsel and one other person met with me and said, you know, we go around and try to talk to churches about why Christians should influence the government and laws, but uh, a lot of people are saying, we don't think that's right for Christians to do. Would you ever think about writing something like that? Well, that was just... uh, Shortly after, another group had approached me with the same thing. In Scottsdale, where I live, we have the headquarters for a Christian legal defense organization called the Alliance Defense Fund, headed by Alan Sears. And Alan Sears and Ben Bull, who's the, their executive vice president, talked to me and said, well, Wayne, we're trying to uh, protect the legal rights of churches and Christians and uh, stand up for protection of marriage and family and uh, life of the unborn and religious freedom, but we go to churches and they say, what business do Christians have doing this? Um, This really isn't spiritual, is it? And so would you write something about that? And then, uh, so Alliance Defense Fund and Center for Arizona Policy were thinking maybe I could write a little booklet, and it just, it grew, and... (laughs) And I ended up talking in this uh, this book about um, 60 different political issues, far... um, I think Alaska Family Council limits itself to three areas. Where are you, Jim Minery? Um, protection of religious freedom, protection of marriage and family, and protection of life. Those are your three main issues. And Alliance Defense Fund does that too. And I do talk about those right up front in the book. But the book goes way beyond that. And I'm talking about everything from abortion to Zimbabwe and immigration and Israel and economic policies and taxation and just war and capital punishment and right to bear arms and 
everything else that I could think of um, is included in the book. So I just want to say up front, uh, these are my own personal opinions and my own personal decisions. I'm speaking as a Christian who believes in the Bible as the Word of God. It seems to me that biblical teachings on these things lead us to certain conclusions, but uh, there may be some things that I get into specific issues where Jim would say, well, that's not our issue, but we're glad to have you here to present your own personal opinion. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, <laughs> Good. Um, well, I want to start out, if you can just keep on eating while I'm talking, I'm really happy with that. I want to start out talking about um, five mistakes that people make when they talk about Christian influence on government. And then there's a sixth opinion that I'm going to rep- represent as the right view. So uh, let's start on that, and when I get done with those five mistakes and the, what I think is the right view, then we'll do some Q&A, we'll take a, a, maybe a, just a few minute break, and then and for the second hour, um, I want to talk about, uh, go give you an overview of the book, and talk about what I think about specific political issues and how biblical principles apply to these. I should say one more thing by way of introduction. I've been teaching um, biblical ethics at the seminary level for 29 years now. Uh, 20 years at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, and now nine years at Phoenix Seminary. As I taught through the ethical topics that we covered in the seminary course, I realized that many of them had to do with political issues. I talked about abortion, talked about euthanasia, talked about definition of marriage, talked about the role of the government, talked about uh, the just war tradition and the pacifist tradition in opposition to it, Um, talked about wealth and poverty and and government's responsibility with regard to issues of wealth and poverty, and on and on and on. And after a while, I realized many of these issues had to do with political questions that we face in state and national governments today. And so uh, I've been working on the book for the last two years until it came out just a few weeks ago, but uh, in a way I've been working on the book for more than 29 years uh, by doing the research and teaching on ethics. Okay. Let's talk about those five wrong views of uh, Christian influence on politics. First wrong view, government should compel religion. Government should compel religion. This is the view of the government in Saudi Arabia, for instance, where everybody has to conform to the practices of Islam. And uh, Christian churches are not allowed to meet publicly because the state enforces a certain religious viewpoint, and that is... uh, the Muslim religion. Um, Sadly, in the history of the Christian church, there have been groups who have promoted that view, and that was responsible for the wars of religion in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries, where Protestants and Catholics were actually fighting battles with soldiers back and forth for control of territory, and if the Protestants won, then everybody in that area was Protestant, and the Catholics won, everybody in that area was Catholic, because the state had, they thought, had the right to impose a certain religious viewpoint on people. And then after the Reformation, sadly, there were battles between the Lutherans and the Reformed Protestants and the Anabaptist groups, in some cases, for control of territory as well. Over the course of time, Christians realized that this compel religion view is not consistent with the teachings of the Bible. And the bottom line in that is that genuine faith cannot be forced. If if you've raised children, you know that. (laughs) you can teach your kids the Bible, you can bring them to Sunday school and church, but you can't force them to trust in Christ as their personal Savior. That's a decision they have to make for themselves. And so uh, the idea that government can compel religion is inconsistent with the nature of faith itself, as it's described in the Bible. It's inconsistent with the way Jesus approached people. He didn't compel people to believe in him, but he invited them. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So there's an invitation, or Joshua, in the book of uh, Joshua in the Old Testament, uh, uh, choose you this day whom you will serve. And in the end of the book of Revelation, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let, let the one who, hear, uh, who comes take the water of life without price. It's an invitation. It's not compulsion. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, there's an interesting example where Jesus was passing through, in Luke 9, passing through the villages of the Samaritans preaching, And there's a village of the Samaritans, it says in Luke 9, that refused to receive him. And James and John said, Lord, do you want us to bid fire come down from heaven and consume them? This was a brilliant new evangelistic strategy. (laughs) 
Think how many people would have come, 100% in the next village, (laughs) if the first village had burned to a crisp. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. He refused to compel people to believe in him. The the theoretical distinction that leads to this uh, New Testament view, that genuine faith can't be forced by government, The theoretical distinction comes when the Pharisees came to Jesus in Matthew 22 and said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he said, show me a coin. And they gave him a denarius, and he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said, therefore, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to God that which is God's. So Jesus distinguished two realms. He implied that it was right to pay taxes to Caesar. That was Caesar's inscription on the coin. And he said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. But he also implied that there's another realm, those things that belong to God, that Caesar had to keep hands off of and couldn't control. And it wasn't for Caesar to try to control the the field of the church or what, what is going on and which church people go to and where they should worship. That was a distinction from the Mosaic Covenant. In the Mosaic Covenant, you didn't have a realm that belonged to Caesar and a realm that belonged to God. Everything was under one government. Moses was the head of the people of Israel. He was the head of the people of God who lived in Israel, and he was the head of the nation. David was the head of the nation and the head of the people of God in Israel, and so was Solomon. And they had one set of laws over everything. And so it was a theocracy. But Jesus is saying that isn't the case with the New Covenant Church. There's a distinction now in this New Covenant age because the gospel has gone to all nations And so when you choose elders in a New Testament church, it isn't the civil government that becomes the elders. When Paul writes to Timothy about how to select elders in 1 Timothy 3, he doesn't say, go to the city council in Ephesus, they're your elders. See, the Caesar officials are not automatically over the church. He rather gives character qualifications And uh, he gives the same to Titus in Crete in Titus 1. And you probably tell your church to look at these things. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. You tell your congregation in choosing leaders for the church that they must follow character qualifications. You don't say the local city council is automatically your governing board for the church. There's a distinction between the government of the church and the government of the civil authority. So it is wrong. The first wrong view is government should compel religion. And once we come to that conclusion then I think as Christians we must state that our first principle, whenever we talk about Christian involvement in government, our first principle has to be the protection of freedom of religion for everybody. For everybody. I drive on the uh, ring road. Or, oh, well, I'll give you two, two nights ago, three nights ago, I was, I was driving to speak at a church in uh, Gilbert, Arizona, and on Elliott Road where I was driving to speak in that church, about a mile before I got to the church, I noticed there's a Buddhist temple off on the right. And I look at that, and I think two things. I think, first, I'm sad that people are following Buddhism rather than coming to... The only way to God is through Jesus Christ as Savior. But the second thing is, I think, in my heart... Lord, I am so happy I live in a country that protects freedom of religion, where a Buddhist temple can be built and can be protected, and people have the freedom to propagate their religion. That protects our freedom as Christians to promote Christianity, and in fact, the strength of Christianity is such that it can stand on its own two feet in the public square and be ashamed of no one and do as Paul did, discuss in the synagogue or in the marketplace day after day after day the things about Jesus Christ and salvation through him. So, uh, first principle, government shouldn't compel religion. We must must protect freedom of religion for everyone. Second wrong view is the opposite, and that is government should exclude religion. This is the view of the American Civil Liberties Union. This is the view that says we have to take down the Ten Commandments from public buildings and from school buildings. This is the view that says you can't have Christmas displays in a public square. This is the view that leads a high school principal when a valedictorian is speaking and she begins to quote a Bible verse in her valedictory address. This leads the high school principal to switch off the public address system so her voice cannot be heard. This is really wrongful suppression of free exercise of religion. And it's a wrongful suppression of freedom of speech. 
This view, the exclude religion view, was never adopted by the American people. No legislature ever uh, voted to, uh, to uh, tell us we have to exclude religion from the public square or from government speeches or anything like that. This view was imposed on us. It was really jammed down our throats by an overactive Supreme Court. In two decisions, 1947, the decision Everson v. Uh, Board of Education, and then 1971, the decision Lemon v. Kurtzman, where the Supreme Court decreed that government action shall not have the effect of advancing or hindering religion in general. The Founding Fathers never said that. The Founding Fathers said, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, which to them meant we're not going to have an official state church. They had come, many of them, out of England, where the Church of England was the state church, and the government supported and promoted the Church of England. They said, we're not going to do that in the United States. We're not going to have an established church. But they never wanted to and never intended to exclude expressions of faith or religion from the public square. In fact, the foundational document of the entire nation the document upon which our nation's existence is based, the Declaration of Independence, says in the very first paragraph, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of of nature and of nature's God entitled them. So nature's God entitled us to a separate and equal existence as a nation, they are saying. They're saying that God authorized the existence of the United States as a separate country, and that this creator, God, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And at the end, they said, they commit themselves with a firm... for the support of this declaration and with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, which is, again, another way of speaking about God, we mutually pledge to each other our lives and our fortunes and our sacred honor. They were not excluding religion from expression in the public square in the very foundational document on which the existence of our nation is based. It talks about God three times. But the Supreme Court has wrongfully forced that on us. This, This exclude religion, this second wrong view, aims... Ultimately, it's, it's, it's based on an assumption that there is no God, or if there is, we can't know his moral standards. And it aims ultimately at the, uh, not only at the suppression of religion in the nation, but it aims ultimately at the removal of all moral standards, absolute moral standards and accountability to God from a nation as a whole. And its uh, ultimate result will be the moral disintegration of a nation. Just a P.S., one other consequence of this exclude religion view is that in our public schools, teachers are no longer allowed to say, God has certain rules and you should obey them. They rather say, well, here are some rules that you should obey. Why? Well, because you should obey them. Why? Well, because you should obey them. Or they bring good results or something like that. Not nearly as strong a basis for moral standards as saying, These standards come from God. Here are the Ten Commandments, for example. So we wonder about the moral disintegration of our country. The Supreme Court, in its imposition of this exclude religion view, is largely responsible for that. From the Bible, the reason I think that this exclude religion view is wrong is that Romans 13.4 says that the civil authority is God's servant for your good. Who's the, who's the state senator who prayed at the outset? What's your name? Dyson. Senator Dyson. Uh, that verse is talking about you. You're God's servant for our good. Um, Romans 13.4. Goes the same for you. <laughs> Thank you, Representative Keller. Uh, you are God's servant for our good. But if the civil government is God's servant... How can the civil government know what God wants if you exclude religion from all discourse in the public square, from all discourse about political issues? How can the civil government know what God wants him to do? I was, uh, about a year and a half ago, I had an opportunity to go to Albania, poorest country in Europe, first country north of Greece, former communist country, now very pro-Western and pro-American. 
We didn't know when we went there we were going to talk about biblical principles for economic development. We didn't know it, but the hosts had set up an appointment for us to have a half hour with the Prime Minister of Albania. <laughs> professing Muslim and highly educated, cardiologist, anti-communist, was leader of the anti-communists, became Prime Minister. As I was walking in the rain, pouring rain in Tirana, Albania, over to the Prime Minister's office there, protecting myself from the rain with the umbrella, I felt as if God was saying to me, Wayne, you're going to meet my servant, Muslim Prime Minister. But that's what Romans 13.4 says about the Roman Emperor, Nero. He is God's servant for your good. And so... Uh, Christians in political office, non-Christians in political office, we want them to hear. And God opened up a door for me to... In fact, I should have said, Jeff, I I wasn't the head of the ESV Translation Committee. I was on the committee. There were 12 of us. I was the general editor for the Study Bible, the ESV Study Bible. But I got to bring the Study Bible to the Prime Minister of Albania. And Albania is mentioned in the Bible, in Romans 15 but it's called by the ancient Roman title of that province, Illyricum, where Paul says, I preach the gospel from Jerusalem as far around as Illyricum. So I had that verse underlined in the Bible. I said, Mr. Prime Minister, could I give you this Bible that I edited? I said, Albania is mentioned in here. The Apostle Paul says he came here. And I said, in the note says, which I wrote the note, says Illyricum is the former is what is now Albania and what was formerly Yugoslavia and he read it he's quite fluent in English and he said this is true <laughs> so he was happy about that Mr. Prime Minister could I turn back a couple of pages because I think that this book of Romans talks about you and he said sure so I turned back to Romans 13:4 where I had underlined the civil authority is God's servant for your good I said Mr. Prime Minister Here, the word of God is saying that you are God's servant for the good of the people of Albania. And I'm thankful for that. I was able just a couple days ago to send him, I don't know if it'll get to him, but I inscribed a copy of this politics according to the Bible and said, Mr. Prime Minister, uh, may God bless you and guide you as you seek to lead the people of Albania. So, well, are we allowed to do that? See, the... The exclude religion view says, oh no, keep religion out of the public square. But my response is, shouldn't we be able to give guidance from God's word to those whom God has set in authority over us and allow those views to be made known for the consideration of those people? And that same trip to Albania spoke to an audience, a business audience of about 300 people, some Christians, some evangelical Christians, some Roman Catholics, some Eastern Orthodox, and some Muslims. And I just said, look, I'm coming here as a professor of the Bible. I think the Bible is the word of God, and some of you do too. Others of you don't think it's the word of God, but I'm just asking if you would hear the reasons and the arguments and consider these things as a book of ancient wisdom and see whether you think these are persuasive arguments. And with that, I was off and running and able to talk about the Bible and how it influenced public policy and economic policy. So I think we should be able to do that. And I think the exclude religion... From, public, from the public square is a second wrong view. The third wrong view is a little bit unusual. It's the view that says civil government is evil and demonic, and Christians should stay out of it. This is the view of a Minnesota pastor, Greg Boyd, and his influential book from a few years ago called Myth of a Christian Nation. In this book, Greg Boyd says... Satan is the acting CEO of all earthly governments. So Greg Boyd is a pacifist. He says when police use force to restrain murderers and evildoers, when armies use force to defend a nation, they're just serving Satan. That's Satan's work. That's not the work of God. The work of God is simply to change hearts through the gospel. My response to Greg Boyd is, that isn't the way the New Testament talks about the civil government. The New Testament doesn't say that the government is Satan's servant. Romans 13.4 says the civil authority is God's servant for your good. 
And so I think that third view, government is evil and demonic, is the wrong view. Does government do wrong? Sure. Sinful people do wrong things from time to time. But the overall perspective of the New Testament is this is a gift from God that he's given us civil government, and we should be thankful for it. And as God gives us opportunity, seek to serve him in it. The fourth wrong view is do evangelism, not politics. (laughs) Do evangelism, not politics. This is a kind of a common view in evangelical churches. It says, getting involved in the political world, this doesn't really do any spiritual good. People aren't saved through this. What we really should be doing is telling about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so people's hearts are changed, and they come into the kingdom, and that's how we should transform society. It's kind of a waste of time getting involved in politics. And besides, what kind of government we have doesn't really matter too much to the work of the church. The church will go on no matter what. Well, here's my response to that do evangelism, not politics view. First, I want to say, I agree that the central message of the New Testament is Acts 16, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is the central message of the Bible. And we must never lose sight of that. But that central message is not the only message of the Bible. Because after we trust in Christ as Savior, after we're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, then what are we to do? There's a whole category of teaching in the New Testament that falls under the general topic, good works. We're not saved by good works, but after we're saved, we're supposed to do good works. Let me give you some examples. If you... um, Those of you who come from a church where the Bible is taught, my guess is that your pastor teaches from time to time on how to relate to each other as husbands and wives in marriage. That's good works. But I bet your pastor teaches about how to raise kids. That's doing good works, isn't it? That's living, another way of saying it is living in in obedience to God, living the Christian life. Uh, I bet your pastor talks about um, how to love your neighbor as yourself. That's good works. Bet your pastor talks about how you are to act in the workplace and be a faithful employee. How you are to act in the business world. That's good works. Isn't it? Well, then, shouldn't your pastor also talk about how to act in civil government? Isn't that another form of good works? In fact, let me, let me look at the central verse that people look to, to again and again about justification by faith alone. Romans 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We say, amen. That's justification by faith alone, not by works. But let's read the next verse. The next verse says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul says, you're justified by faith alone, now do good works. That's the point of it. He says, that's what God made you to do here on earth. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's why Jesus said you should love your neighbor as yourself. That's good works. That's why Jesus said, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's why you are to care for the poor and needy. That's why you're to care for the homeless or care for those who are uh, substance dependent, those who are or substance addicted. And that's why you are to uh, uh, love your neighbor, care for your neighbor as yourself. But it seems to me that one way of loving, loving my neighbor is voting in such a way that my neighbor will have good laws that will protect my neighbor's family, that will protect my neighbor's marriage, that will protect my neighbor's preborn children that will protect my neighbor's right to decide how he or she will spend his or her income, etc. That is, if I love my neighbor, won't I seek to do good for my neighbor? When I began to think about whether the church should be involved in influencing uh, government and politics, I did some research on how how the church has influenced 
um, how the church has influenced governmental laws throughout history. And I found uh, something very interesting. A book by historian Alvin Schmidt talked about Christian influence on laws and government for many years. He says, going back to the early period of the church, uh, starting in the late 300s A.D., the church had enough influence that it began to influence the laws of the Roman Empire. So here's some of the results. Under Christian influence, the Roman Empire outlawed infanticide, child abandonment, and abortion, 374 A.D. Under Christian influence, the Roman Empire outlawed the gladiatorial contests in which thousands of contestants had horribly been put to death. Outlawed, 404 A.D. Under Christian influence, property rights and other protections were granted to women as well as to men in various countries throughout history, under the conviction that both women and men are created equal in the image of God. Under Christian influence, India passed a law prohibiting the horrible practice of burning widows alive with their dead husbands. That law was passed in India in 1829. Under Christian influence, a law was passed in China prohibiting the cruel practice of binding the feet of young women. That law was passed 1912. And then Schmidt says, in various countries throughout history, Christian influence has led to the abolishing and outlawing of slavery in the Roman Empire, in Ireland, in most of Europe. And he mentions William Wilberforce, a member of parliament in England and an outspoken Bible-believing Christian who, as a Christian, committed his life to a campaign to outlaw the very profitable slave trade and ultimately slavery itself in the British Empire. It took him his whole life, 40 years, to succeed. And yet, Wilberforce succeeded in parliament so that the slave trade was outlawed in the British Empire in 1807 and slavery itself was abolished in 1833, just before... Wilberforce died. In the United States, Schmidt points out that the abolitionist movement campaigning against slavery in the 1830s in the United States, two-thirds of the leaders of the abolitionists were Christian pastors preaching politics from the pulpit, saying that slavery was immoral, it was wrong, and the laws had to be changed. Now you say, wait a minute. I've read that there were some southern pastors that were arguing that slavery was right. It was justified by the Bible. And there were. But they lost the argument. And they lost the war. And the Emancipation Proclamation stood. And the nation was preserved. And slavery was abolished. More recently in our history, the Reverend Martin Luther King was a Baptist pastor who preached from the Bible that racial segregation and discrimination practices in the United States were morally wrong and the laws needed to be changed. And they were, for the good of the nation. So we have a whole history of centuries where Christians have influenced politics for good. They didn't say, oh, there's no spiritual good that comes from this, I'll just do the gospel, I'll just preach the gospel. They said, no, if God has called me to this, I want to seek to do good for my neighbor through influencing government and politics for good. Was there any spiritual good in this? If it's obedience to God, it is spiritual good. He counts it worthy of our favor. And of, of, he counts it worthy of his favor and blessing on us. And he counts it worthy of eternal reward. As for the claim that it doesn't really matter what kind of government we have, because the church will go on, go on no matter whether we have a good government or a bad government, I invite people to, I, just, I simply disagree with that. It does matter a lot what kind of government we have. And as two examples on two ends of a spectrum, I want to point out North Korea and South Korea. Both countries speak the same language. Both have the same cultural and ethnic background. Both live in the same part of the world. The only difference is they have different governments. North Korea, an oppressive, totalitarian government, 
in which millions of people have starved to death. And when you read missionary statistics about the church around the world, they will say, how many Christians are in North Korea? No known Christians. Now, I have since talked to a couple of people who have personal contact with those in North Korea and who tell me there are some secret Christians in North Korea, but they can't meet publicly. And if they begin to share their faith, they put themselves in danger of imprisonment or death. What I do know for sure is that there are millions of people who have been born, grown up, lived, and died in North Korea without ever having a chance to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what I do know is that there is no missionary activity whatsoever going forth from North Korea. By contrast, South Korea has had revival going on for a number of years. 15% or more of the population of South Korea is born-again Christians. They've had a massive influence on the government. They're printing Christian literature incredibly rapidly, and they're sending missionaries throughout the world. Does government have an effect on the church? Oh, yes, it does. If government gives us freedom to be obedient to God, then we can much more easily live lives of faithfulness to what God calls us to do. So um, the only difference between North and South Korea is the kind of government. Paul tells us how we are, what kind of government we are to seek. He says in 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, in 1 Timothy 2, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He's saying, pray that the government won't persecute you. Pray that you have freedom from the government, that you have a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We are to pray for good government, and if we're to pray for it, surely we should be able to think that we have God's approval when we work for it as well. These changes that I mentioned in human government throughout history, where laws were changed for the better, they came about because Christians realized if we can influence government for good, we will be obeying Matthew 5.16. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The fifth wrong view. Uh, the, the fourth wrong view was do evangelism, not politics. The fifth wrong view is the opposite of that. That's do politics, not evangelism. This is a temptation that people fall into. When they become involved in the political system, they, they begin to think, wow, this is the solution to everything. If we can just get the right candidates elected, if we can just get the right laws passed, then our state will be fine and our nation will be fine. This was actually the view of a movement in the early part of the 20th century called the social gospel movement. They were just going to transform society by good works, and they neglected to preach the gospel of salvation, individual salvation by faith in Christ. I was speaking just last week to a, a person from uh, a Latin American country, from Brazil, and he said to me, we have the liberation theology movement in Latin America, and that's basically this do, do politics, not evangelism movement. They're just seeking to transform society, but not preaching salvation by faith in Christ alone. Well, the mistake there is to forget the central teaching of the Bible, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I don't think that society is ever going to be transformed by good laws alone. Society will be transformed by two things, the gospel of Jesus Christ and changed hearts so that people have a desire to be obedient to the law. That's the spiritual component, but also the governmental component, good laws so that people are encouraged by government to do what is right and that government can carry out its function of punishing those who do evil and rewarding those who do good restraining evil and protecting us from evildoers in society. Both things have to happen. And to give you kind of a practical example, um, what is that highway you drove us down to? Seward Highway. Seward Highway, okay. What protects you from drunk drivers on the Seward Highway? <laughs> One of those angelic forces, maybe. But uh, uh, that was the third idea that I hadn't thought about. I'm going to suggest 
Um, someone might say, hey, wait a minute, let's not, let's not have laws against drunk driving. Let's just preach the gospel and everybody's heart will be changed and then there won't be drunk drivers. It's not going to do it. It might change some people and keep drunk drivers off the road because they've been saved and they stop devoting themselves to a life of alcoholism and reckless endangerment of others' lives. But I'm glad we have laws against drunk driving. I'm glad that police, if you start weaving back and forth on the Seward Highway, some policeman's going to pick you up and take away your license, give you a fine, put you in jail if you persist. And that protects us all. So, so yes, the gospel does transform lives, but good laws protect us from wrongdoing as well. And I think we need good laws. We need both influences. Okay, so we've got five wrong views. Government should compel religion. That's wrong. Government should exclude religion. That's wrong. Government is evil and demonic. That's wrong. Do evangelism, not politics. That's wrong. Do politics, not evangelism. That's wrong. Is there a right view? Well, I'm suggesting in chapter 2 of this book, Politics According to the Bible, that the right view is significant Christian influence on government. Significant Christian influence. Christian influence is not compelling religion. It's just seeking to go into the public square and talk to people and seek to persuade. But it's not excluding religion either. It's saying there's a role for significant Christian influence in government. When I look at the Bible, I find a number of examples of God's people, God's Jewish people who were believers in the Old Testament and Christians in the New Testament having a significant influence on secular governments, not just on Jewish governments, but on pagan or unbelieving or non-Jewish secular governments. Go way back to Genesis 41, 40, and we find that Pharaoh put Joseph as second in command over the whole kingdom of Egypt. Secular country. But there was Joseph, faithful to God, and advising Pharaoh and administering much of the kingdom. Go over to Daniel, Daniel 4.27. Daniel is speaking to the most powerful leader in the world at that time, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, 600 B.C. Daniel says, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Daniel, as a Jewish believer in God, is advising King Nebuchadnezzar, a secular king. He doesn't say, O king, you are a Babylonian. I would not presume to impose my Jewish moral standards on you. You have astrologers and soothsayers. Consult them. Follow your own heart, and then you'll know what's right, O king. He says, no. He says, O king, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. And Daniel's position as a high advisor to Nebuchadnezzar suggests that he had significant influence in the kingdom of Babylon. Or think about the story of Esther. Esther and her uncle Mordecai had huge influence on Ahasuerus, the king of Persia. They, by, by Esther's courage, risking her life, she saved the Jewish people from destruction. And then Mordecai was put in a position of second in authority over the entire kingdom of Persia. Not the Jewish people, but a secular kingdom. Nehemiah, chapter 1, he says, I was cupbearer to the king. That was a position of high influence in uh, the kingdom uh, as well of Persia. You go over to the New Testament, you know that John the Baptist was beheaded because he criticized Herod, the Roman official, for taking his brother's wife. But Luke 3.20 says this. It says not only did did John the Baptist criticize Herod the Tetrarch concerning his brother's wife, but it says he rebuked him also for all the evil things that Herod had done. That's very inclusive. John the Baptist rebuked Herod for all the evil things that he had done. And I imagine he had a list of things that he went through. You, as a Roman tetrarch ruling over Galilee, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this, and God's going to hold you accountable. John the Baptist. Secular government. Paul, on trial before Felix, the Roman governor, We read in the book of Acts that, where is that verse, if you're taking notes? It's around Acts 26. Acts 24. 
24 to 25. It says, Paul reasoned with Felix about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And Felix, the Roman governor, he was alarmed. He said, go away. I'll send for you when I have opportunity. But the word reasoned there, the Greek word dia legumenu, is a, is a present participle, and the, for, the meaning of the Greek word dia legomai means a discussion back and forth, and the meaning of the present participle means a discussion that continued over some time. I think Paul and Felix had quite a long discussion about Felix's policies as the Roman governor and what was right and what was wrong. What is, what is it to consist in righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment and how you'll be accountable. So there are examples of God's people having influence on secular government, influencing government for good. And so we have a lot of teaching in the Bible about government. And when a pastor says, I'm not going to preach about politics, I'm going to say, well, aren't you going to preach on Romans 13? It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God, etc. Teaches about government. What about 1 Peter 2, 13 to 14? What about the teachings in Proverbs and Psalms about a righteous or an evil king? Aren't you going to preach about those? What about the narratives in the Old Testament tell about the good and evil deeds of the kings of Israel? Aren't you going to preach about those? What about Genesis 9-6, where God lays the foundation for authority for civil government and inflicting punishment? There's a lot in the Bible about civil government. And I think as pastors, if you are preaching through the whole counsel of God, don't you have a responsibility to preach on these things also? Now, a pastor will say, well, what things should I speak about? How do you know what topics I should talk about? I don't answer that in my book. But what I say is this. Don't surprise your congregation with a political sermon. Talk to your wife. (laughs) Talk to your elder board or your governing board in your church um, and, and... I know uh, once, for instance, a church in suburban Washington, D.C., in Maryland, asked me to speak on moral and ethical issues in the upcoming election. This was October um, 2004, I believe. And it's the first time I'd done this, but um, uh, at the request of the leadership of the church, I showed them the whole sermon ahead of time, showed the, the, the elder or the governing people in the church. They came back with some feedback and said, can you change this, can you change this? I showed it to them again, they talked. So at least I had buy-in from the leaders of the church before I spoke. I didn't mention any candidate by name. I didn't mention any political party, but I did say, here are some issues. And I did say also, you may decide that you come to different conclusions from me. You may decide there are other issues, maybe the personality or what you see as the personal integrity of the candidates. Maybe you see one, can- one party or another has a greater history of helping the poor or solving the economic conditions of the nations or defending the nation. Or People can come to different conclusions, but here are the issues that I think you should speak about. I think pastors have some responsibility to give guidance to their people in that way. And there are some issues that I think are very clear. So I, I go to Scottsdale Bible Church. Our pastor, uh, Jamie Rasmussen, I don't think had ever before spoken about any political issues from the pulpit. But in the fall of 2008, we had a ballot issue that was a constitutional amendment to define marriage as between one man and one woman. Our pastor, Jamie, looked at that. He thought about it. He prayed about it. I'm quite sure he got counsel uh, on it, but I, I wasn't involved in that. But one morning... He got up in the pulpit. He said, this amendment is coming up in the election. Here's what it is. The Bible teaches this about marriage, that it is between one man and one woman. And then he said, I think you should vote for this amendment. It was just a forthright, very clear endorsement. The Internal Revenue Service regulations do not at all prohibit pastors from taking an issue, uh, speaking on an issue like that. They just say, don't endorse or oppose a political candidate by name. And so uh, I felt very good about that. I thought this was a proper approach for a pastor, and it was appropriate. Whether he will speak on other issues, I don't know. But I want to encourage you as pastors to uh, consider these things, consider whether you from time to time ought to give guidance to your congregation on issues at least where the Bible is very clear. And, you know, there are other issues where you can just help a congregation a lot by saying something like, both 
Both candidates, both parties agree we should help the poor. One candidate says government aid should be the primary means. The other candidate says we should lower taxes so businesses can grow. Those are questions of the best means to get a result. We can at least talk about that, can't we? And respect one another for our different viewpoints. Just clarifying that is helpful for a church, even if you don't take a position. Um, and, um, and so, anyway, I just, I'm giving you some suggestion. But here's the other thing I would say. Um, I would encourage you as pastors to make room in your church for people like Jim Minnery and the uh, Family Policy Council of Alaska with the understanding that parachurch organizations can do a lot more emphasis on political advocacy than churches can do. But as you make space in your church, isn't it just saying that we're like a body with many members and different people are called to different things? Billy Graham, through his whole life, said, I'm not going to speak on any political issues. I want to preach the pure gospel of Jesus Christ so I can talk to Democratic and Republican presidents and Congress and Senate alike. Um, Okay, that was one approach. James Dobson said, by contrast, I think God has called me to talk about the protection of lives of preborn children, protection of marriage. There are some political issues I'm going to talk about. And I wonder if Romans, if 1 Corinthians 12, where it says we're different members but one body, some are like the ear, some are like the eye, some are like the hand, some are like the foot, and maybe we have different callings. And some are called to work in the music ministry, some are called to work with youth groups, some are called to ministry to the poor. Couldn't some be called to work in political issues? So is it possible, let me ask you this question, is it possible that both Billy Graham, who never spoke on politics, and James Dobson, who did, is it possible that they were both being obedient to the individual callings that God had put on their lives? Thank you. You can sit in the front. You, whenever I speak, you can sit in the front. <laughs> that's good, that's good. Okay. Good. So, um, so bottom line is, I'm saying, I, at least in some ways, at least in voting, and perhaps in more active ways by contributing or helping a candidate, one party or another, and perhaps even in more active ways, like deciding to run for city council or for school board or for state legislature, could God be calling some of you to influence the political process for good? Because it seems to me that Christians, at some level or another, have a biblical responsibility to influence government for good. Thank you very much. I think we can do some Q and A. That's is that all right, Jim? That was the plan. I was going to get the speaker, or the, the mic. Okay. Where's the mic up here? Oh, the podium broke. I'm a podium broke. Okay, raise your hand. I'm going to run around and get some exercise. Mm-hmm.